Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center, on a rather gloomy and cool morning. Uh, this podcast you're about to hear, this talk, is uh, part of a talk I gave at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California, last Saturday. And it deals with two stories that I shared with the group. So, without further introduction, these are the two stories I shared at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. So, having said that, I want to share two stories. Um, uh, The first story was my uh, trip to um, Phoenix, to my niece's wedding. And, and I've, as you know, I've got the stuff posted. If you have any curiosity at all, you can go and look at some of the pictures and look at some of the video. I figured out how to do the video. It worked out fine. Yeah. So, um, um, but for me, it was really interesting because it was challenging. Well, number one, going to Arizona, and, and it was so hot. And it's, it's very culturally different than Los Angeles as well. Um, and a lot of these people are servicemen. They're in the service right now or just got out of the service. So they have a unique way of looking at things, too. And I remember an email that my mother sent me about two weeks before the wedding. And she said, uh, what are you planning on wearing? <laughs> you know. And uh, so I said, well, I think I'm just going to wear, like, a shirt and pants. Do you think that'll be Okay. And then she emailed back and said, oh, that'll be fine. And so that was the last I heard of that. But I I realized that uh, they were being challenged in a very unique way. Um, um, Nobody at the wedding was a Buddhist. A few people had mild curiosity. But most of the people had a bit of apprehension because it was otherworldly. It surely wasn't, you know, something they thought about every day. And they didn't want to make, they didn't want me to make them feel uncomfortable. That was one of the feelings I got from everybody. That um, when they found out who I was, I said, well, I teach meditation. That was how I induced myself. And I remember this one person saying, oh, you're the one. You know? (laughs) And when they said that, I'm going, okay, um, I'm really going to have to, you know, uh, be careful or skillful in what I say and how I say it. And not because anything I do is, is wrong, it's just because I don't want them to suffer any more than they have to. I want them to feel comfortable. And I remember bringing this up and one person said, well, it's your job, why don't you just wear your robes? I, I think you're, you're foolish in thinking that you shouldn't wear them. And yet, I saw that if I had wore the robes, people would feel um, um, this. I feel a certain unease. Uh, maybe not. Just they wouldn't feel as comfortable as they would if I hadn't worn the robes or had worn the robes. So I, I made a conscious decision to just be a civilian and to go there. And and so there was a lot of small talk going on. And then we had the, uh, the uh, rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. 
and, and tubs and tubs of alcoholic beverages. And everybody was, you know, it was a hot day, and everybody was drinking well, except for me. So I was the only one that wasn't drinking. And I didn't want to, you know, I sort of sat in the back, and I had my Coca-Cola, and, and it was fine. But I, but I realized that uh, the level of mental health was dropping dramatically as the hours passed, you know. And any chance at an intelligent conversation had gone out the window by 9 or 10 o'clock. In fact, some people were picking, <clears throat> they were picking fights, you know, not with any of the members, but after the, after the dinner, we went to a, an outdoor cowboy kind of club eating establishment with live music, and there was picnic tables, and this one guy uh, who, who was in the wedding uh, tried to pick up this girl. But this girl was with her boyfriend. And so her boyfriend was there looking at him like he's insane. And of course he was insane because he was been drinking for two days and, and had no idea uh, what was appropriate and what wasn't. And there I was, you know, just sort of like, sort of just wondering uh, how am I going to get through the weekend, you know. The wedding happened. It was a beautiful wedding. Um, but again, I, I wasn't drinking, and so after the wedding, they had an open bar, and this one guy had two beers. I don't know if he thought he was going to miss out on the beer or something, but he, he, he always walked around with two beers, and he drank from both glasses. <laughs> you know, he just wanted to drink. So I, I just, um, and then my mother, I was sitting next to my mother, I hadn't, hadn't seen my mother for three years, hadn't seen my nieces and nephews for over five years hadn't seen some other people for 15 years. And um, my mother said, would you mind getting me a glass of wine? And I said, sure, Mom, I'd be glad to. And then I stopped. And I thought, and I said, I can't. I can't get her a glass of wine. Because if I get up and walk to the bar and get the wine, every eye will be focused on that glass of wine that I'm carrying. And they may just assume it's for me. You know, and so I had to ask the woman next to me. I said to her, "Would you mind getting my mother some wine, because I can't get it?" And then I explained to her, you know, why, and she understood, and she got the wine. And the reason I was a bit gun shy about going and getting the alcohol, I did a wedding a couple of years ago, and it was um, a Vietnamese wedding, and, and it was a Buddhist wedding, and, and they invited me to, you know, um, be the clergy, and I accepted and. They said, you know, we'll give you a little bit of money, but we'll feed you. We're going to have a 12-course meal, and, you know, and all monks like to eat. And I said, oh, I can't pass that up. <laughs> and so after the wedding and before the dinner, they had an open bar, and I got uh, uh, some sparkling water, and they gave me a wine glass with sparkling water. So I'm sitting on this ledge holding this wine glass with sparkling water, and this Vietnamese man comes up with a camera and stands right in front of me and takes a picture. And this walks away. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, oh no. I, I, I said to myself, the next time I get sparkling water, I'm drinking it out of the bottle. I don't want anybody to, you know, uh, misunderstand what I'm doing. And I see that it's very important to be a certain way, whether you're in your robes or not. And especially if you're in your robes, because you are representing a tradition that uh, prides itself on 
its morality, its ethics, and its discipline. So after that photo being taken of me, uh, it didn't take long for those memories to come back and, and apologize to my mother enough for not being able to get the wine, but I thought it would be best. So it went well, but I found myself really out of place. I, I felt like stranger in a strange land. You know, I didn't really fit in any place there. And people weren't really impressed with what I was doing. They didn't have a clue what I was doing. They didn't care what I was doing. <laughs> and so I just, you know, did small talk and really realized how boring small talk can get after four or five hours because you really don't say much of anything about anything, you know, and then you just leave. Uh, so, end of story one, beginning of story two. A couple days ago, last Friday, my answering machine was blinking, and I pushed the button, and there on the answering machine was the voice of Jack Cornfield. Yeah. And it started off with, hi, Kusla, this is Jack Cornfield. And I go, wow. You know, I had read a lot of his books and listened to a lot of his tapes and, and have only the highest respect for him. He's a, an amazing fellow. Um, and I couldn't imagine why he'd be calling me in, at all. And he said, the reason I'm calling you, I suppose all I had to do was listen. He said, the reason I'm calling you is I got your number from Achan Armaro from Abayagiri in Northern California. And I like to ask you to think about doing something. And then he went on to say that there is something happening in downtown Los Angeles, and it's, it's called The Farm. And there were people protesting about the land use and, and the sale of the land, and there were 300 gardens on these, these few acres. And, uh, and so uh, we'd like you to be a Buddhist presence down there. And we didn't know who else to call, but if you could find some other monks and nuns, I think it would be useful to go down there in your robes and say something about peace or reconciliation or whatever. And he said, thank you for listening, and, uh, and uh, let me give you my cell phone. He said, this is a temporary cell phone number, but if you want any more information, please call me back, and I'll be glad to share with you what I know. And then he hung up. And then he called back again and said, oh, Kusla, I forgot to say something. And he said something else. And then he hung up. And so I was really excited. I said, okay. Well, I had never heard of the farm up until that point. Uh, um, so I went online. And then, of course, it's on TV now every day. But I went online, and, uh, and it turns out that Joan Baez was there for a couple days. And I really liked Joan Baez. And I'm thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be cool to put on the robes and go down and hang out with Joan Baez, you know? And um, then Daryl Hannah showed up and, and staying there. And I always liked Daryl Hannah. And I said to myself, wouldn't it be fun to put on the robes and hang out with Daryl Hannah? And then other people were there. And I just happened to catch the evening news, and, and a lot of people were there. They had tents, and they had tables, they had food, they had people playing uh, a banjo, or a guy playing a banjo. They had American Indians chanting and dancing. 
a lot of people were there doing a lot of things. And I got to find out a little bit more about what the deal was. And it seems that they wanted to uh, uh, sell the land for $16 million and then have it developed. But there were a lot of people who had planted gardens, and they're using those gardens to supplement their food, uh, their low income, and so the gardens help them exist, stay alive. And I guess both sides had their point, whether somebody owned the land, and I don't know how generous they expected him to be. They encouraged him to give them the land, but most landowners I know don't just give their land away. And $16 million may be a little bit high for the property. Maybe he could have charged less. There was, you know, so there's all sorts of issues. And then I had to decide whether it would be appropriate for me to go there in my robes. With the wedding, it would seem to me appropriate not to be in my robes because that would make everybody feel more comfortable. But at the farm, it seemed to me it would be more appropriate with my robes if I decided to go because I would be making a statement. I would be a, a clergy person going in and representing a tradition and hopefully offering some words of wisdom. And I decided that I just couldn't go. And the reason I decided I couldn't go was because um, more than anything, I think it would be a political statement and a religious statement. And I can remember being invited to speak at uh, uh, Cal State LA. And they were working on prison reform, and uh, Father Greg Boyle was there, who works with uh, Homeboys Incorporated, and he does a lot of gang work, and, and there were people who had been in prison who were speakers and, and community activists. And then there was me. And I really didn't know what my role was going to be, so I went up to the podium and I did a loving-kindness meditation. And I thought, well, with all the aggression in this room and all the, the ways uh, it could be and should be, that people weren't balanced. They had picked sides the right side and the wrong side. And so I wanted to just come in and say, you know, uh, find your heart and, and we're all connected and blah, blah, blah. And so that's what I said. And then I went and sat down. And there was a, sort of a quietness after I spoke, you know, a hush, you know. And I don't think they were too impressed with what I had to say. And at this table, they had a table, there was this woman and she was a Mexican shaman woman. Had never met a real shaman before. But she was interesting. And, and, and she looked at me and she needed to come and say something to me. So she literally got up out of her seat behind the table and walked around and, and just walked over to me. And she leaned over to me. And she said, uh, I see the marks of the evil one on you. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then she just walked back and sat down. And I'm going, whoa, unexpected, you know? And so um, I, I didn't stay around for the food afterwards. I just sort of decided <laughs> I was going to leave. 
But what I wanted to bring, you know, was the message that we're all connected and that, uh, and that a balanced mind, a rational mind is the way to go and, and make social change. So with that experience in my mind, as I reflected on what would I do at the farm, what would I say at the farm? And I thought, well, maybe one of the most appropriate things to say was that this world is in a constant state of flux and everything is changing. And even if you do win now, maybe five years from now, the building will be built, or ten years from now. But nothing ever stays the same. And it probably won't stay a garden forever, and it probably won't stay a warehouse forever. You know, uh, L.A. is in flux. So how can we use this opportunity now, you know, and not be so attached to it that we're willing to, you know, break the law and and stay connected in uh, to one of this one side or the other. So I thought about that. And I was thinking, well, they don't want to hear that, and that that wouldn't work. And then what you know, what would the Buddha have done? in my place. Did the Buddha ever go and simply change something because it needed to be changed? Did he did he take a systemic approach to problems and say, okay, we're going to change the system because the system is flawed. So, for instance, if the next election in November is coming up, if the system is flawed, we need to make a social change and we all need to go out and vote. Would the Buddha have encouraged all his monks to go out and vote if they could have? And, and I don't think so. Reading what the Buddha did and what the Buddha said leads me to believe that he simply changed the world one person at a time. And if there was something wrong with the king and the kingdom, he wouldn't try to change the kingdom, he tried to change the king. And because he didn't uh, seem like a threat to the king or the kingdom, I think he was pretty much left alone. You know, they allowed him to have a sangha. They allowed his monks and nuns to live apart from the main community, and and they didn't necessarily uh, get involved in the politics of the state, though they did give advice when asked. And so, was I asked to give advice? Well, not really. I was asked to sort of show up. So even though I had the most respect. Uh, uh, and, and have a lot of respect for Jack Cornfield, and I really appreciate the compliment of asking me to go out and be part of that, I really had to say no, I couldn't do it. The day after he called, I got two emails from people I had never met before encouraging me to go to the farm, and I got a couple more phone calls from people saying, come on, Kusla, go out and go to the farm. And with all that pressure building, I felt a little uh, uncomfortable. Because why was it so important for Buddhism to be there? You know, And the Buddhists could have been there, but why was it important for monastics to be there? And should monastics be in places like that? So I was talking a little bit about this at the UCLA Buddhist Club, and the students said, well, is it okay for us to go out? and march and protest? I said, oh yes. I said, that's great. But when it comes to the monastics, I don't know. 
It reminds me of Father Drinan. Now, Father Drinan was, uh, is a Catholic priest, but he was also a member of Congress for a while. He had been elected to Congress. And at one point, the Pope contacted him directly and said to him, you have to make a choice. Do you want to be a priest or do you want to be a congressman? Well, he's still a priest and a good one. I had a chance to meet him and talk with him a bit. And he's uh, clever and wise and sharp. He would have been a really good congressman, too. But he chose to be clergy. And I suppose the Pope asking him to step down really says, you know, you can't be ruled by two masters and do a good job. That you really need to pick sides and choose uh, where your allegiance lies. And, and so when I looked at that, I personally would like to get more involved with politics. I have emotional connection to the political problems of today, and, and I think I could be very useful, and I wouldn't mind holding a sign and picketing and walking and, and expressing my view, whether it be in a conservative way or a more liberal way, in a loud way or soft way. And yet I have to keep pulling myself back and say to myself, I don't think it's okay for a monastic to get that involved. One of uh, uh, Achan Amaro and Achan Pasano are co-abbots of Abayagiri. And they were talking to their monks about the upcoming election. Uh, and this was John Kerry and George Bush. And they said to their monks, you know, if either one of them comes to visit us, chances are pretty slim, either one was slim, either one would. But if either one comes to visit us, or both come to visit us, we have to treat them exactly the same. We can't show preference, even if we are Republicans or Democrats. But this is a Buddhist center, and we need to have balance and equanimity. And we need to invite everybody in. Wow. So I, I remember that as well, that story, as this decision was being made. That I think, for me and for Buddhism, it's better that I don't go. It's better that I support it in other ways, but not with the robes. Now, maybe I could just go in my T-shirt and blue jeans and, and you know, take a look around. But, but to bring the robes, I'd be bringing something other than myself. And I have to be very careful how I use that. So those are my two stories. It's been a really interesting couple of weeks. I've been challenged in defining who I am and defining my role as a Buddhist monastic. Well, that's it. That's uh, the podcast. The two stories I uh, shared with the group at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like more information on True Yoga, please go to their website, trueyoga.com. More information on me, visit my website, kusla, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. And if you'd like to email me, I'm always happy to respond. 
My email address is kusla at urbandharma.org. Well, thanks for listening, and until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.